Welcome to Screw It. We're just going to talk about comics. That's comic books, everybody. This is the only podcast hosted by two brothers where they talk about a thing they love. And in this case, that thing is comic books. I'm one of your two hosts slash brothers slash kind of comedians, Kevin Hines. And I'm the other host, Will Hines. Hello, everybody. Yeah, Uh, that's the two of us. And we are doing our classic Mutants and Mailbags <laughs> episodes. They're classic, classic. now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've yeah. been doing them for six months. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and these are the episodes where we answer uh, listener emails. And also, we spend the first half of the podcast discussing Chris Claremont's classic epic run uh, the un- on the Uncanny X-Men. I paused. <laughs> on Could you- S- Sovereign 7. <laughs> no, uh, on, on the Uncanny X-Men, the classic... Chris Claremont, Uncanny X-Men comics. Uh, we are smack dab in the middle of John Byrne era Claremont X-Men comics. Speaking speaking of classic. Yeah. Uh, we're past Cockrum. We're in John Byrne. So we are uh, edging closer and closer to dark, uh, the death of Phoenix. Yep. And days of future past and those sort of things. I mean, we're, uh, we're, we're squarely in the middle of an immortal run of comics right now. That's right. Uh, we're on issue 129. And uh, we're doing 129, 130, 131, 132 today. So this is basically the Hellfire Club is what we're doing. Yeah, and that's, like that's maybe the first half of that. Yeah. Uh, that's a long arc. Yes, uh, we spent a long time with the Hellfire Club people. And they've already been kind of like hinted at for, for, for like, I don't know, three or four issues already. At I mean, this considering point. that like Days of Future Past is... Two issues. Two issues, like which is, I think, a more famous storyline right days of like future past where where like but, we the future x-men come back to our present to try to save their future yeah and i've read those issues i haven't read uh this i hadn't read these issues before but i've read like here and there and i read days of future past uh because it was so famous i'm like oh i gotta read these comics yeah uh i i don't know if i remembered them being two issues but i, I now am aware that it's two issues so it's like oh yeah it's, wow this is a quick tight impressive little story and then hellfire club six seven eight issues i mean <laughs> these four issues are great but the hellfire club in and of itself is sort of just feels like i don't know it's not magneto it's not juggernaut they're cool they're very cool villains and they're they sort of the opposite number of the x-men in a way like I, I remember them during the new mutants era being like they have their own school of new, evil new mutants <laughs> i, I, I think- love that i love that mutants always have schools yeah, I think that's very fun and very cool. Like he- um, heroes who get their powers from radiation, you're just on your own. You're mm-hmm. so like the radiation heroes are sort of the stand-up comedians of the superhero world, and mutants are the improvisers. You know, they got classes and levels yeah. and teams. <laughs> oh man, imagine being uh, uh, everyone's complaining like, oh, why does Wolverine get to have two teams? Yeah, I'm as good as Wolverine. It's like, no, you're not Cannonball. Shut up. You're stuck on the new. You're lucky to be in the new mutants. <laughs> nothing can hurt me when I'm blasting. That's always your argument. Just like Wolverine, nothing hurts him. We're the same. <laughs> Cannonball, I asked you to get me a pencil. You flew through four rooms and got stuck in a vat of molasses. That's not a vat of molasses. That's our classmate. Whatever. <laughs> Pretty good bits. Hey, comedian-ish, we said we promised. This is the level of comedy that uh, you're going to get. But um. Yeah. So, but the Hellfire Club is like they're an institution. Like that, that, that you know, this is the birth of one of the longtime sort of like characters of the X Men of the X Verse. Sure, they're still a big part of the current X Men. They're um, 
part of the Krakoa era. I don't know if I'm ever pronouncing that right. The Krakoa era uh, X-Men that's going on now, like uh, Emma Frost and Sebastian Shaw are huge parts of that storyline. Yeah. So it's kind of fun to see the birth of something that becomes like, Mm -hmm. you know, a big part of the mythology. That's really, and they're, they're fun right away, man. I mean, this, this is, these are really fun issues. I mean, Emma Frost becomes a good guy. Oh yeah, that's right. A full on, I mean, sort of like a mean, evil, angry, good guy, but no question. Good guy. Uh, During the Grant Morrison era, when Jean Grey is dead for the second time, (laughs) uh, Emma Frost and Cyclops, have a relationship and they're sort of the, she sort of takes the Jean Grey role because she's a powerful telepath. Um, mm. And she is sort of like, but she's also sort of like eviler than Jean Grey. So she's closer to like Phoenix Jean Grey than regular Jean Grey. So she's like willing to do stuff that uh, Jean what wouldn't do. And she's a very interesting character. And I remember I read a lot of those comics because, you know, I was like, I don't care about the Claremont era that, redefined x-men i'll read the later stuff um that built on it <laughs> yeah we like, those, we'll wait another 20 years to read the the yeah, absolute not, foundation of this i'm not quite ready for that yet uh i'm more of a predator three kind of guy and i'll wait for <laughs> predator one for a while later but yeah like she was really cool and i remember uh when gene gray eventually comes back i was sort of like well, who cares about gene gray give me the evil gene gray in a, in a way i like emma frost a lot and she's a member of the hellfire club during this arc Though is maybe killed. It's unclear to me. We'll talk about that when we get to her part, I guess. And then also um, Kitty Pride is introduced in these issues. Yeah. I mean, uh, one most... of the all-time great X-Men. No She's doubt about it. <laughs> yes, Kitty Pride to uh, the X-Men. You didn't know I that? Can, I consider her more of an Excalibur member. <laughs> uh, uh, I was surprised to find Nightcrawler was on this team, it seems like. Oh, <laughs> really? really? Yeah, I thought, it, I thought really X-Men comics, most people say started with Excalibur. Mm-hmm. And then sort of ended. Cyclops is the one that surprised me. I had ne- I had never seen him on an X Men team. Yeah, he's always he's he's like, all right, interesting. I'm all havoc. No way, you're you like older brothers. You're not going to go for the younger brother. Come on. <laughs> yeah, Kitty Pride, the who's sort of like uh, initial sort of like personality is being just quite young. Like she's just like truly like uh, how old is she? Thirteen or fourteen or 13 something? Thirteen and a half. She's very young. She's drawn uh, uh, so young by John Byrne. And I, 13 and a half shocked me because I think of her as like 18. Yeah, I kind of think of her as, because I, I always thought of her as like 17 or 18 or something like that, like high school, you know, like. Um, but, but it makes sense, right? These, these yeah. mutant powers are supposed to come in at puberty. I mean, we basically see the birth of her powers in these issues. Yes. And that's really interesting. And, she very much is a real teenager. And since she's treated like a real teenager, that's, I mean, it's an ingeniously. But, but 13 fun. is barely a teenager. Yeah. Um, you know, but that's, that's, what, that's what makes her an interesting character, right? Yeah. Like she's naive. She's still a kid. Yeah. They're extremely protective of her. She is very powerful. I think, I guess it's just because like when I read New Mutants, because I read New Mutants a decent amount as a kid, I even thought of them as like high school age. 16 yeah. at the youngest, right? Like, I yeah. think like Rain is probably 16, maybe 15. Rain's the but, werewolf, right? But yeah, but a cannonball and sunspot. And uh, you think of them as like 18 or 19? Like, Danny, I think of them as like, yeah, 17 to 19, maybe 20, like young, especially compared to the X Men who feel like adults. Yeah. X Men feel like they're in their late 20s. Yeah. 
uh, maybe even 30. Like Wolverine looks 32. Right. Although he actually is like 150 or whatever. Of, yeah. He's a hundred million years old. He's <laughs> the first human. He's Adam from Adam and Eve. Um, <laughs> hey, bub, give me that apple. So to have Kitty How's Pratt that? be younger than what I would put, that's exactly like, yeah, that's exactly what he would say. Yeah. Um, uh, I, putting Kitty Pride younger than how I pictured the New Mutants is very surprising to me. But powerful, though, right? Like for stories, like uh, oh, sure. And also, you know, just like you more know, interesting. more interesting, more interesting. I wish and, she had stayed younger, longer. I guess I feel like she got aged up too quickly. Um, in that sense, yeah. Um, well, Chris Claremont mentions that in our interview with him, which I have to edit. Yeah, I was thinking about that too because he complains about the relationship she gets into in Excalibur where he's like, by that point, she would have been still underage. And I was like, I was reading Excalibur, even the ones Claremont did, I did not think of her as 16, 17. I probably at that point was putting her at college age, 20, 21. Yeah. But in his mind, she was like 17, I think, which fits which fits if she's 13 in this issue. Um, it's very interesting. Um how how much like Claremont and Byrne and really all comics creators sometimes will stick so hard to the reality of something only to bend other pieces of reality. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess that's what makes a good writer. They have to know like what impacts the story and what makes the Kitty Pride story is interesting is that she's truly young, like, a, you know, and also the age of your readers, right? Like we were, we were 13 when we, or I was 13 when I first got into comics. I forget how old yeah. we were, two or three. When, but we, like, when we were not reading this. <laughs> yeah. When we didn't read this. You know, that would that would make it exciting the same way that when Spider-Man first debuted, he was truly a teenager in an era when most superheroes look like they had day jobs. Yeah. You just slipped a bombshell, right? Because I don't think the Claremont episode has dropped yet. No, it has not dropped yet. We recorded it. It might be the next episode. Oh, yes, it might be. The, yes, it'll be the next episode. So last week we interviewed. Alex that's right. Segura. That's right. That's right. Uh, and now we're doing this episode. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm so disorganized. Yeah, yeah, the next episode will be an interview with the great Chris Claremont. Yeah, who wrote Sovereign Seven. <laughs> uh, he wrote some novels with George Lucas. Yep, that's and, mostly uh, what we talk about. And then I don't know the, what else he's done. I don't know. He's a couple Marvel, other Marvel but books Iron Fist. He's, he's like the Iron Fist guy. Mm -hmm. Did some great team-up issues. 25-year run on Iron Fist. Uh, and the dark, dark Power Man arc, Days of Future, <laughs> Iron Fists, that sort of the stuff you just did. Uh, yeah. So we talked to Chris Claremont, which is very exciting and very ridiculous that we talked to him. Uh, and that should be our next episode, assuming it's edited in time, in which assuming case, it's not, it'll be something else. <laughs> this is a fake podcast. All right. So <laughs> let's, um, so Kevin, what do you, let's, let's get into this issue a little bit. Uh, so this issue, involves like the x-men are all uh, uh they're done with proteus banshee leaves the team like that's sort of the first thing that really happened right he his powers are gone so he might as well yeah there's some talk about him wanting him to stick around which is ridiculous uh because he has no powers right now it's just the whole family thing like we're all friends yeah. we're best friends but yeah he has no way to help in the in any of the problems that come across so he stays in scotland with moira Right. And then we sort of like recap that Jean Grey is getting, being pulled into these hallucinations. Yeah, where she meets a guy named Jason Wingard and it's like old timey colonial, like British colonial sort of yeah. garb. And she's some sort of evil aristocrat. Uh, but then she in the present, she's reaffirming her love for Scott Summers. Yeah, he sort of like ditches his affair with Colleen Wing very quickly. The X-Men um, 
they change their mind fast. Like that's yeah. definitely something we've observed from issue to issue. People can be best friends one issue and then like totally over it the next and then yeah. completely torn up about it the next. It is Ditko level emotional roller coaster where like Spider-Man is smashing a desk in one panel and then sobbing uh, the next. Yeah. In love with Betty in the next panel and then like never loved her in the one after that. Then the X-Men go home to Westchester and they see Professor X, some of them for the first time in quite a while. Yeah, he's been in outer space. <laughs> Dating Queen Lalandra. Yeah, yeah, just doing alien stuff. He's also a jerk in this arc. Yeah, he's very he's very um, ego-filled and sort of like puts Cyclops in his place unfairly. Yeah, he thinks the X-Men are not skilled. He's like putting them through a danger room thing and they're not doing well. And Cyclops is like, this is not how this team should operate. He's being a real jerk about it, especially for a guy who left. Totally abandoned went to them. space for I don't know how long. And to Cyclops, who he's known longer than any of them, right? Like, right. this is his guy. Yeah, he doesn't seem to trust Cyclops. And he seems to think he knows better. When he left, he thought they were dead. He didn't check up on them. He didn't stay to train Jean Grey. He went to outer space, made out with some aliens. Yeah. And now he's back and he's like, it's my team. I mean, it is all his money and his house and his yeah, you know, trappings. But at a certain point, it's like, dude, you sort of left. Professor X is a weird one because, like, you know, you think of him as this kind of like gentle, mm -hmm. good guy, father figure, which he is sometimes. I you mostly know, think of him that because of uh, Pat Patrick Stewart. Patrick him. Stewart, yeah. You think of him as this kind of noble, grand energy that Patrick Stewart has. But um, serene. He's a, yeah, he's a lot more like a Jack Kirby character you know, like Reed Richards in the FF where he just yes. kind of bosses everybody around and he's sort of condescending um, and he's kind of a bully and he's wrong a lot. Yeah, even in the Secret Wars stories that we had covered, he was sort of like mean to Storm, who was the leader at the time. He's like, I'm in charge here. Uh, I can walk now. I'm going to take charge. And it was always like, what? He felt a little bit like a jerk, but seeing where it starts from now, it's like, man, this guy's just always mean and a jerk. Why did it? This team shouldn't work. Yeah, they, they don't need him anymore. Like they, He's more of a they, Bobby Knight type. <laughs> they um they've they did without him for a year or something, right? Like they've all yeah. these. So then and, we move on and we actually and barely missed him, I'd say. Barely missed him. So then we quickly meet the Hellfire Club. We start to learn the other members. We learn there's yes. a guy named Shaw. We see the White Queen, I think, for the first time. I forget, but like yes, I think it's the first time. Emma Frost, the White Queen. Uh, Sebastian Shaw, and we're still talking to Jason Wingard, who is revealed during these stories to be Mastermind. Yes. Who I guess is a character that existed before. Yes, but of course I have never heard of I've him. I've not read those storylines, so. We to also me, see like, that okay. the, the Hellfire Club has a lot of like um, deck of cards aesthetic. Like they're really mm -hmm. big on like suits and clubs and hearts and diamonds. Yeah. Though they don't use red and black, they're white and black. It's um, It's not consistent. Because they want Jean Grey to be the black queen and they have the white queen. So it's both, it's both, there's it's no both like chess, white of hearts. It's chess and cards. I guess just yeah, maybe yeah. games in general. Maybe maybe oh. if we went to other rooms of the Hellfire Club's mansion, there'd be like a Monopoly room and stuff like that. Maybe. Yeah. They're really into sorry. Um, okay, then we get to Kitty Pride, And this is where uh, Kitty Pride is a teenager who's going through her uh, headaches and she's her powers are evolving. We see her like accidentally fall through the floor of her bedroom down into the living room of her suburban house. That's a really cool sequence because one, you don't actually see her phase through the floor. You just see her on her bed 
a close up on her face. And then she is on the floor in like her living room and the panels are set up. So like the panel is right under her bed to sort of show that she fell through. But since you, since I know that's what her power is, I know she fell through. But if you were reading for the first time, she could have teleported. We don't know how she got there. And she doesn't know either. So it's very cool. It's keeping her powers mysterious at first. I think that's really fun. And then she's being recruited by both evil mutants and good mutants, right? Emma Frost first talks to her parents to get her to come to a school. It's like, it is kind of Bobby Knight. It's like she's a star athlete and like all mm-hmm. the division one schools are coming around. I mean, her power set is not so great that she should be that highly recruited. Um, also, but what do her parents think? Of? Their 13-year-old daughter who has two elite schools showing up at her door at the same day going, we want her to attend our school. Yeah, they, they, they kind of roll with it pretty easy. <laughs> they don't blink an eye. Like, <laughs> if that happened to me, and I got good grades, well, I got good Frank. grades in high school in high school and junior, especially in junior high. I was, you know, you getting A's and a couple B's, but mostly A's. I was, I was doing really well. Nice. But I think if, like, two elite schools came to my house and were, like, wanted me, I'd be like, what is going on? <laughs> I don't think our dad would have, he would not have understood what was happening. He would have talked uh, about it. Yeah, he's like, you don't want him. <laughs> he can't hack it. Uh, it. It would have been very strange, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, that's not played up in these stories. It's more just like, is Kitty going to be sucked into evil Emma Frost's or is she going to go with good guy X-Men? But the X-Men, they're I mean, real deep. They got they bring out <laughs> four. They bring out X, Professor X, Wolverine, Colossus, and Storm show up. Yeah, it's a, it's a good showing for Kitty Pride, But also the parents are like, they, they have Kitty Pride go with these three X-Men, who again, like Wolverine looks 30s. And Storm doesn't look young, mostly because of the white hair. Yeah. Uh, Colossus, Colossus does looks, have a little sweater vest on. He looks pretty innocent. Colossus, Colossus looks collegiate. But again, like, he looks like 1920 to Kitty Fright's 13. He lets someone lets these thir- three adult strangers take their daughter to a soda shop. Well, thank God they do because uh, it, it helps one of the main right. characters of the X-Men get introduced. So Kitty Pride hits it off with Storm right away. Yeah, everyone loves Storm, including you, passionately. Uh, I'm in love with Storm, but big deal. John Byrne, I assume, I don't know, Byrne or, oh yeah, Wolverine's looking at a penthouse magazine. Yeah, <laughs> and, and Colossus is judging him. Yeah, it looks like he's looking at Hustler in the first panel and then Penthouse in the next one. Oh, yeah, that's right. Hustler, that's very funny. Uh, and so then they get invaded. Like red robot guards show up, crash through a window, and they attack. Kitty Pride accidentally phases out of the diner into an alley. Lots of alleys in comics. Every store yeah. has a nice alley by it. Yeah, I mean, I think she's in Chicago, so I guess they probably have alleys. New York doesn't, which is always feels wrong to me. I mean, in the Marvel Universe, New York, there's 100 times more alleys than actually exist and 100 times more water towers. Yeah. Uh, these X-Men are fighting these robots. Uh, they switch partners, which is classic superhero 101. Yep. Take down their uh, the villains. And they're doing pretty good until Emma Frost shows up. And just knocks them all out with her telepathic ability and kidnaps them. Uh, she doesn't get Kitty Pride because Kitty Pride had face through the wall. But and so Kitty like- Pride stows away in the ship using her now... She's aware that she's got these phasing abilities and is immediately putting them to good use. Which I got to say, the, the, that I was so excited to see her immediately in the mix. Yeah. That she, you know, the the just learned about her powers an hour ago. 
Yeah. Sneaking onto an alien craft to rescue people she met half an hour ago. I guess now is when I'd want to recruit her. When I saw her do this, I'm like, okay, this is a, this is a star. I want this person on my team. And I guess that's why I don't get the best mutants for my school because I wait until they do something. Yeah, you're not school, recruiting them early you're, enough. Yep, you don't take risks, so your development, your minor league, is really bad. Yeah, I'm like trying to get Nightcrawler now. It's too late. Like I've been on the X Men for yeah. forty years. You got to get. Like, oh, yeah, you got to get good. Sh- you got to get chair hands, like the guy who can like just make chairs out of his hands whenever he needs yeah. them. I'm not ready for him yet. So the next issue, uh, we move on to another, not not a debut, but um, a, a character new to the X-Men comics, Dazzler. Right. So she had a, a comic at this point or a one shot or a series. What What is it? What's the who deal? Well? But she was an existing character. <laughs> right. <laughs> I had no I mean, idea. She definitely had a comic, right? Yeah, there was a Dazzler comic. I mean, this was like a new character of the time, and she's like the roller disco. And and was Dazzler what did not spin out of this? Dazzler already existed? You know what? I should know that, right? That's what you seem to be implying, that she's not new. You're saying this is not her debut. I'm going to look it up while you talk. Okay. So, yeah. So we cut to the other X-Men. So that's Nightcrawler, Phoenix, Cyclops. Because Professor X wanted to go with the other ones to test them to see how they were doing. So the other three are. This in is New her York. first. This is her first appearance. Okay, so everything you just said before was wrong and misleading. completely wrong. Um, this is Dazzler's debut. She goes on to have her own comic, and she she kind of is like around a lot in the early '80s of Marvel comics, and then now well, she's kind of like, oh yeah. Oh, her first her her solo comic was one of the first only sold in comic shop comics. Oh, I didn't know that. It was not on newsstands. It was like a test to see like, oh, can we sell enough at comic shops that we don't need to worry about newsstands anymore? Dazzler was, I think, the first Marvel comic that did that. If not the first, it was the first number one or an early one. Like DC did it with like one of their new Titan. They did like New Titans and uh, Outsiders kind of had comic shop only comics. There's a word for it, but I I can't think of it. The way they distributed it. Not direct market. Is that what you're looking for? Maybe it's just a direct market only. Dazzler looks like it was like an animated special that Marvel had been commissioned to do, like a cartoon <laughs> yeah. or something. And then they then decided to put her in the comics. I don't even she's know if that real, cartoon She's got happened. a real gem in the holograms feel. But this is her first like comic book appearance. Yeah. So the X-Men are, are showing up at some weird club because they sense there's a mutant in there. Uh, and they go into this club and uh, Jason Wingard is there and he kisses Jean Grey, which Cyclops doesn't like. He doesn't like it. He doesn't like it. Not at all. Yeah. And so like I'm cutting around a little bit, but while this is going on, we cut back to see Kitty Pride has followed the X-Men back to the Hellfire Club. Yes. And they're all c- c- captured in like go-go cages. Uh, yeah. We get our, we get our thirst trap of storm, which you usually get in these issues. Yeah. But also you get Colossus and his tidy whities for the ladies and, 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 and for Wolverine those too. Attracted. If you're into, if you're into a hirsute gentleman, we have a, yeah. Uh, a very not too well, uh, not too not too dressed Wolverine. And Kitty Pride goes up to Storm. Good choice. Oh, they also make a big point that they take away Storm's lockpicks. Yeah, the Hellfire I, Club I, is aware of that. I do think that X Men comics, you know, it, things happen so fast and they're so reckless, but they they do sort of mind of the store on those details a lot of times, and I kind of like that. I mean, I think that's Claremont one hundred percent, right? Like, yes, I, like, I believe so. He's like, if I don't mention these lockpicks, then we're going to say, why doesn't she use the lockpicks to get out? That is that is what I would think, because we've seen her use them at least twice to get out of these situations. Um, and so she doesn't have her lockpicks, but she does like have a phone number written on a piece of her co- clothing. Yeah, sure. That makes and sense. She, and she rips that out 
to show more skin for Will and gives the piece of clothing to Kitty Pride, who escapes by leaping into the floor. It's such a cool shot. It is really fun. Like, I guess her power is just going through things. You're not as powerful as like other mutant things, but visually they're, they're, it's really fun. And I definitely have daydreamed about being able to phase through things. Yeah. Phasing is a really so, cool power. Some powers I daydream about having and some I don't, you know, like I there think is, about web swinging every day. There is a um, supervillain called the ghost. He's an Iron Man villain, I think, who can go through walls. He had a part in Thunderbolts for a while. I okay. really love that character too. And he mostly just phases through things. There's something very fun about just someone who's like, you can't touch me. Yeah. I can't necessarily hurt you that easily, but you can't hurt me unless I want you to. So I've got time on my side, basically. Anyway, she they're chasing after her and she just like dives like she's diving into the water, but into the floor. And it's a very cool shot. Uh then we get um then we get the kiss between um Oh, then, you know, Scott Summers sees Dazzler, Jean Grey and Jason Wingard kiss in this disco. Yeah. And they realize that Dazzler is this mutant. Uh, she makes light. Her These two mutants, their powers are quite less, they're quite a bit less impressive than, you know, Phoenix, Wolverine. Yeah, Phoenix, who has the power of a god, who basically can yeah. do whatever she wants. Storm controls all weather. Colossus, who's super strong. A Wolverine, yeah. who can heal from any injury. Dazzler can like turn on like flashlights. But it's also implied that she could craft a disco pop hit with her natural musical ability. And that's superpower of its own. Sure. I mean, that is powerful. I think that's not a mutant power, though, Will. That is just her God given musical talent. Tell that to Backrack and David. Uh, I will. <laughs> so Kitty Pride, Kitty Pride does great, right? She gets to a phone, she, does she great. calls uh, Nightcrawler, uh, but Nightcrawler is being chased by these pink robots. I mean, the action is just this really is a great issue. fun. Um, like we're it's like we're learning about characters like Dazzler. We're seeing Kitty Pride be cool, but we're also jumping back and forth between two simultaneous. There's two fronts, yeah, right. Like Jean Grey and Scott Summers have one battle going, and then our prisoners have another. I thought the uh, previous issue was pretty good. This issue is just real, real, real good. This is a great episode of the X Men because of all those things you just said. Yeah, these robots are attacking. These X Men make pretty short work of their. Um, Attackers like they it's not it's not easy, but they handle it pretty easily somewhat because Dazzler helps like Dazzler frees uh, Gene and then Gene frees Cyclops and then Cyclops frees Nightcrawler or, or Phoenix frees Nightcrawler. But like once they kind of get a handle on things, they take it down and these guys don't have Emma Frost backing them up. Right. Which is crazy. Like that means. He didn't send a, a, anyone powerful to go after Phoenix. Yeah, which they're going to pay for at the beginning of the next issue, right? Maybe we should. Yeah. Just, um, how does this issue end? The one we're on now. I guess they sent. I guess Jason Wingard was there. I guess they were expecting Jason Wingard to get Phoenix to to help somehow, and that's not clear. Uh, this ends with them driving away, and Colossus sees Jason Wingard. Wingard's shadow, and he goes, "Oh, do I know that person?" And the answer eventually is yes, but not someone that Will or I know. <laughs> <laughs> right. The beginning of the next issue where Kitty Pride is being chased by the bad guys and Phoenix steps in and saves her. Yeah. Phoenix steps in and Nightcrawler. She's terrified of Nightcrawler, which is a very fun thing. That's like, a, I believe, uh, and, and I don't know how long running, but that's a little bit of a plot for a while that she's scared of Nightcrawler because he looks so scary and it makes Nightcrawler sad. Oh, interesting. Because I remember in Excalibur, again, where, which I read lots of, there's, there's some talk about like oh, how they used, she used to be scared of him. And now they're like, they're like best friends. And in their mind at that time, the only living X-Men. 
It's like we're talking about Cheers, but you've only watched Frasier. I mean, Frasier's a quality sitcom. That wouldn't be <laughs> the worst thing in the world. Um, so it's you know it's really it's really funny to see Phoenix throw down like her powers so outmatch anybody. Yeah, she like obliterates this car. Uh, and, and this is also starts a running plot of like Cyclops being a little afraid of how powerful Phoenix is. Rightfully so, I I'd say. At some point, we cut back to our captured X-Men, uh, nearly naked Colossus and Wolverine, bikini-clad Storm on a Kirby-esque sort of, you know, you know, torture device or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're always Almost being like a- manacled to weirdly shaped platforms. No one's just got a simple rectangle platform in the Marvel Universe. It's either no. like, you know, three cylinders that are rotating around like a big egg mixer or there's you're strapped to a big Y or something like that. Yeah, I mean, when you're super villains, you got to... It's a, it's a lot of style, style over substance sometimes. And so now, now our Kitty Pride and Scott Summers and Phoenix are sort of intent on rescuing their teammates. Right. Uh, so the the Kitty Pride frees Wolverine by um, putting her hand in the lock. Yeah, nice. Which sort of just disrupts it, which we don't know is a power of hers, but she can like disrupt mechanical devices when she phases through them. Uh, so she frees Wolverine, but then gets zapped by something, and Wolverine's like, good, I'll kill you. Uh, yeah. But meanwhile, the rest of the mutants are coming in the front door in a car, which I was confused by for a while because it's being driven by um, the guards. Bad guy, bad guy henchmen. Yeah, and I was like, how How are these – who's who's pretending to be these bad guys? Yeah, because we see them all in the back. Yeah, I, was, I thought maybe oh, Colossus is dressed up as one of these – or rather Cyclops is dressed up as one of these guys, but no, he's in the back. And it's just, eventually they say Phoenix was controlling their unconscious bodies and making them talk. Yeah. That is insane. Yeah. It's a big move. very powerful. Yeah. Big move. Now we wonder, we cut inside the club and Dazzler's doing her light show. And we, as the audience, wonder, what's the song? What's the chord progression? Um, What's the beat? Is it groovy? We got a slow jam happening. There's also Dazzler, and it's not... um, played up very much it's not even mentioned in dialogue it's on roller skates yeah all the time yeah she's constantly skating that's kind of fun (laughs) it is funny it's crazy (laughs) like i don't know what that gains her that she wouldn't get by like running (laughs) she goes like one percent faster (laughs) yeah it's it's all style man so now the x-men have infiltrated the club and they're freed and they start making quick work of a lot of the henchmen hang on i'm a little ahead the yeah yeah they free now. Yeah. Colossus Wolverine is free. They're taking care of Kitty Pride, and they're starting to make quick work of the henchmen. Yes, very and quick. Then, I mean, Jean Grey takes out a bunch. Of, like uh, Nightcrawler takes out three. These guys aren't too tough. Kitty Pride and Colossus kind of hit it off. That's kind of fun. We know, you know, they're a couple in the yeah. future. I, mean, I guess that's what I'm saying. Like he's, he's. I don't know how. I don't know how old he's supposed to be. He seems six seven years older well he's her. not he's not doing anything romantic here she just sure. seems charmed by him wow peter you saved us all that was neat and he kind of smiles it was and we yeah, know yeah. That we know that colossus is a sweetie she's a 13 year old that's got a crush on a handsome colossus no shame in that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. no shame in having a crush on colossus yeah i'm all for it go ahead kitty uh but the fact that they ever have a relationship in the next five years is sort of makes me question what his age is currently Maybe it's I know you, I know, Will, for you, dating 15-year-old girls. Yeah, is, I'm all for it. Like, I think, yeah, yeah I, you know, I'm I'm a Shakespeare guy. Like, I think, 
Yeah. It's and it's That's only a... because I'm a misogynist. Sure. Uh no, but <laughs> I I I there, you know, comic book ages are a little yeah. fluid, you know what yes. I mean? It's just like you say, like it's hard to even kind of get a feel for some you could that you can be told someone's 13, but they're acting 17 and you know, or vice versa, yeah. you know. You can be told somebody's like 35 and you're like, well, I thought they were in college or whatever. Yeah. I guess that's just my point. Like from reading the X-Men comics, and I guess this is like six years later, like Secret Wars era. X-Men, yeah. where they are a couple, they break up because uh, Colossus has a crush on an alien in Secret Wars. Yeah, It's like, in my mind at that point, Kitty Pride is one or two years younger than Colossus. Right. Like he or like, she seems like much eight, younger. Like an 18 and a 16-year-old or something yeah. like that. If I had been reading it since the beginning, if I'd been reading it since this point, I would be like, oh, how do they ever get together? Um, we get a good standoff between Emma Frost and Phoenix, and that's yeah. they are both extremely powerful, so that's a good battle. Yeah, and Storm is uh, wigged out by it. Also, yeah, everyone, is, everyone is taking note of how powerful Jean Grey has become, and it's they're 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 disturbed. They're really setting up. I mean, Claremont definitely must have the end game of Phoenix going evil and super powerful. Though obviously, not her death is not his long term plan. But like, they're playing up that she's cold and evil and powerful. Yeah, and that's coming up soon. Um, but they sort of are temporarily escape the Hellfire Club and they bring Kitty Pride back home and then mind wipe her dad. Yeah, Jean Grey does that just because it seems easier. Yeah, so they change his memories and personality so that he likes them. Which yeah, uh, that's and, an, that's evil, right? That that's evil. Um, I feel like it's a thing that happens more often in comics now without sort of a thought about it. A lot more mind reading uh, without permission and uh, mind altering. Uh, but here it happens, and Scott is definitely upset by it. Storm is upset by it, and they have a little chat that really makes, really, I think, is a great moment for Storm. Like, it makes her seem like the leader she becomes of the team. Like, she's not content to let Cyclops deal with it. She's talking to Cyclops about it. It's like this could be a real problem, and and Cyclops almost tries to push it away. He goes, "Maybe we're imagining things." And Storm says, "You don't believe that. We both sense a wrongness about her." Yeah. It's kind of fun. It's Great. exciting. Uh, we got one more issue to talk about, Will. Okay. So we open up with the X-Men revisiting Angel. At, yeah, he's looking very 80s. He's super 80s. He's, got like, he's like Olivia Newton-John, like headband and like a, and like a leotard and stuff. Yeah. Then he Socks really pulled up over his calves. Kisses Phoenix like a big romantic hello in front yeah. of Scott Summers and in front of his own romantic partner. It, and it nobody, nobody bats an eye. It doesn't look like a quick, it, not even like a peck, a lip, quick lip kiss. Yes. It looks like a passionate lip kiss. <laughs> it looks like they're really getting into it. It looks like past lovers kissing and everyone is, and they make jokes that, uh-oh, everyone's going to be jealous. I'm like, yeah, they should yeah be. what's happening here? But this is not, not cool. It is not mentioned. And we just sort of move on. I mean, he even, mm, there's like a weird sound effect. It's not a little, it's not a short kiss. It's not a, you know, it's not a, mwah. the X-Men are almost like swingers, you know, like Professor X is going into space and dating aliens. And yeah, like, maybe that's what's going on. Maybe this is a weird sex club. I mean, the Hellfire Club certainly has the trappings of like an S&M club. And so maybe like the X-Men is sort of the, oh, we're into like sw swapping partners and stuff. We don't go too far. And the Hellfire Club is like the real kinky club. So we do a little recapping for Angel. I don't even know why we're at Angel's house, actually. They go to Angel. <laughs> I think, I don't know why. Cyclops claims it's to throw off whoever's been monitoring them, the Hellfire Club, but he doesn't know that. 
He's uh, like, if we went home, they'd expect that. And Cerebro seems to be tapped. So we came here. Okay, whatever. Then Scott and Jean, he's kind of upset with her and she assures him that she still loves him. Yeah. So they have like sex on top of a mountain. Yeah. Um, it's pretty, it's a pretty randy issue, but now we're going to get back into the Hellfire Club, right? Like the X-Men or what? They're going to go invade the Hellfire Club or something. Right. They find out that Angel has like an expired membership or something because he's rich <laughs> and just has that. <laughs> so he sets it up so that they can be guests at the Hellfire Club. So they send the human looking members of the team to show up uh, at the Hellfire Club for like a party as if they're like trying to join the club and they send Wolverine and Nightcrawler into the sewers. Yeah. No way you guys can look normal. Uh, it's, it's a, this is a kind of a setup issue for a huge battle. Uh, yeah. Next so, issue. so yeah, like I said, Wolverine and Nightcrawler go through the basement, like cut off like alarm systems or whatever. Everybody else shows up as like members are all dressed up, you know, real nice, fancy clothes. Mm-hmm. They go to mm-hmm. this dance Jason Wingard is there and he snatches Jean Grey and walks away with her. Yeah. Uh, And that's when Cyclops recognizes him as mastermind, a character we're not familiar with. And when that happens, Jean Grey blasts Cyclops. Yeah. And she now has been sort of fully um, taken over by mastermind slash Wingard. And now she assumes her role as the black queen in parallel to Emma Frost's white queen. Right. And once that happens, uh, the other X-Men sort of snap into action. It's an interesting thing. Like Storm, they make a big comment all the time about Jean Grey being able to like turn her costume on and off. She yeah. changes her clothes. But like Storm also seems to be able to do that. And when Colossus turns into a steel stuff, his costume is like underneath his suit. Right. Which that's involves true. like giant triangle shoulder pads that could never fit. Yeah. And crazy like uh, swashbuckler boots that go up to his knees. Yeah, I think that's just all X-Men have the power to like wear their costume instantly. Uh, we meet, we get a good look at Sebastian Shaw, whose powers seem to be, yeah, he's indestructible. Either that or he's absorbing energy of other people or something. I think that's what he really does, but that's always been a weird power to me. It's like, so nothing hurts you and you can send that power back at people. You seem impossible to defeat. So they, Nightcrawler they, fights they like a robot. A, Nightcrawler fights a cyborg. Mm-hmm. Um, his, he's Donald Pierce and then, um, Wolverine starts to fight, but a guy named Harry Leland shows up who, uh, can like increase the density of mass and he makes Wolverine so heavy. He falls through the floor into the sewers. Yeah. Back into the sewers. Yeah. And then basically the hellfire club capture even storm. They just take everyone down. They throw them into a big pile on their floor. Yeah. I mean, with Phoenix on their side, they should be able to wipe him out with just a thought. Yeah, they, um, they toast Jean as the new Black Queen. Uh, and we long end, may she reign. And we end in a very fun panel of Wolverine pulling himself out of the sewer and then a dramatic look to camera. Okay, suckers, you've taken your best shot. Now it's my turn. And Kevin, I got, shot. I got chills. This is a very famous shot. I've seen this parodied a lot. I've seen this image uh, before. Uh, I knew it was coming up when he fell into the sewers. I'm like, oh, this is the issue where Wolverine, like next issue I know is Wolverine rescuing all the X-Men. This is a John Byrne Classic. requested storyline, it feels like. I mean, I can't wait. Like when I got this far into the story, I was like, I could not wait to see Wolverine tear these guys up. This feels like the the this is the moment where Wolverine says, I'm the star of this comic book, not these other jerks. He's definitely moving into that role for sure. But also, uh, they have just these last four issues. 
the balance between action and new characters and drama, it's, I think it's perfect. Yeah, I really love those two middle issues. This last issue is good, but those two middle issues are great with Kitty Pride helping the X-Men escape and Dazzler and just everyone sort of just getting captured and freeing each other. It's just really fun. And Kevin, I agree with something you observed. These are very much like a modernized version of the Lee Kirby Fantastic Four stories yeah. where it's like interwoven, like a very complicated set of interwoven stories. And the result is nonstop action yeah. Uh, but, th- but this this has either because they have FF to learn from or just because it's later, it's better. Like th- this is way easier to read. And it, you know, the, the Lee Kirby stuff feels dated, right? Like it's, yes, uh, you know, it's clunky and there's tons of dialogue and there's weird things like Galactus shorts and stuff that just kind of look like strange choices. But this is, I mean, this is cool. I feel like this still is great. Yeah. There's still a little bit, there's just a little bit more of like they, a little bit more human action you know like the yeah. ff comics they don't feel human no nobody does right they all feel like cartoon characters yeah but these characters feel like human beings that interact with each other mostly like human beings but yeah. it does have like it does that's x-men sort of just like non-stop they don't get a chance to take a breath very rarely it's like every 12 issues it, the issue ends and they're like ah let's go to sleep I mean, if, if if this issue came out and we end with Wolverine looking up, I could not wait for the next one. I would be like counting the days. But you'd have to. But you'd have to. There's no, there's no, nothing else you could do. You have to wait a month. Should we uh, take a break, Kevin Hines? Let's do it. Hi, this is Kevin. I'm here with my brother, Will, and we are the hosts of Screw It. We're just going to talk about comics, our weekly podcast about comic books. And we want to hear from you. We have a slew of social media accounts, a slew. You can email us at screwitcomics at gmail.com or see us on Instagram at screwitcomics or tweet at us at screwitcomics. So tell us what you think of the comics you like or the comics you don't or things we've talked about on our episodes. Or send us some life advice. You can tell that we need it. Yes. Uh, We might read your message on a future episode of our show. So thanks. In advance from Screw It, we're just going to talk about comics from Campfire Media. And we are back. That was our mutants portion. Let's get into the mailbag portion. Kevin, what are our loyal, what does the Mary Milksop Marching Society have to say today? Oh, man, you remember the name. Pretty good, uh, right? Yeah. So we get an email from Graham Partridge David, self-proclaimed secretary of the Mary Milksop Marching Society. Okay. Uh, and he says, hello, Heinz is 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 is. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's his is is. I hope you are both keeping safe from disasters, both man-made and natural. As I was listening to you talk about the X-Men on the latest episode, I got a little bit of a chill of delight realizing that soon you're going to get to read the Hellfire Club and Dark Phoenix arcs. Well, that's now. Graham. That's now. It's happening. Uh, maybe for the first time. Yes. I, th- I think I've read some of the Dark Phoenix arc. I'll know when I reread that for, or when I read that for our next episode, but... Uh, uh, I don't think I've read all of it. I don't, certainly didn't read today's issues before. Uh, had you, Will? Uh, no. Uh, the Phoenix stuff, I read it for the first time when I got... I have read it right now, but only in this run. I've definitely read at least the the, the, the last issue of that. Yeah. Yeah. I had um, That's a... Oh, sorry. Go. I just had not read it. That's oh, all. Uh, that's a thrill I wish I could relive. Well, you can't, Graham. Sorry. That's not how sorry. life works. That's, if, you're, if you're asking us if that's possible, it's not. Uh, when I was 11, we moved from the deepest suburbs to a town with a comic shop, and I got Marvel's second ever trade reprint book with an amazing Bill Sinkiewicz cover, and he sent a screen grab, a grab of it, Will. Uh, okay, I see it, yeah. 
Cossack Pilsenkevitz, where it looks like an oil painting and it's very abstracted with like, you know, very uh, uh, strict ridges and stuff. I mean, I love Sienkiewicz art. It's a it's a really cool cover. It was the Dark Phoenix saga. I couldn't believe my eyes. I knew and loved the original X-Men, but these comics were a whole other thing. It's, it's sort of amazing to stumble upon that after having only read the original X-Men, I think. Yeah, I can see where that would be a huge impact. Uh, grown up in a way that I had never experienced. With a, while a lot of the women's outfits would be correctly laughed uh, out of town today, my very, very nearly pubescent hormones definitely flicked on and off like an incorrectly installed fluorescent tube. Graham broke into like some uh, Chandler-esque <laughs> narrative there. Ray, Raymond Chandler or Chandler Bing? <laughs> Raymond Chandler. Uh, okay. Uh, I mean, the hormones maybe is a little bit much, but the incorrectly installed fluorescent tube. Yeah. So much drama and the insanely cool action was all just stunning and makes sense that we're still talking about it 40-ish years later. I'm a little jealous that you could see it with fresh eyes, though I bet an 11-year-old is actually the best person to read it. That's probably true. Probably true. I also wondered if you fellows had read any of John Byrne's X-Men, The Hidden Years. No. I'm basically just asking Kevin. We know Will was too cool for superhero comics. He's a fake <laughs> fan. Uh, both, well, first part's not true. Second part, very true. <laughs> Byrne has just said when he that when he agreed to work on the X-Men originally, he thought he was going to get to pick up where Roy Thomas, Neil Adams, and Tom Palmer left off, and he was a little disappointed to have this new team. Obviously, he didn't let that affect his work. Am I right? Uh, anyway, that's what Hidden Years is, his continuation of those pre-cancellation era stories, which superficially have a lot in common with the Claremont era. Lots of drama, lots of small teams doing separate adventures in parallel. You can see where Claremont was inspired, but his touch is much more delicate, better. Byrne uses the Hidden Years to fix a bunch of continuity stuff that nobody has ever cared about. Like why the X-Men appeared in their old costume and a guest appearance here or there, or how Magneto survived this and that other thing. The comic is okay. I definitely get the sense that Byrne feels that he is bigger than the characters by this point. And of course, he has since revealed himself to be a weird, egotistical transphobe, which nobody wants. He can still draw like an MF or sometimes, though. How hooey. <laughs> uh, it's too bad that telling uh it's too bad that telling some people that they are genius over and over again can have the effect of convincing them that they are. Thank God for Walt Simonson. Uh, make my milk stop. I had heard of The Hidden Years. I've never read it. Um, yeah, we don't read X-Men comics until they've been out for 40 years. Yeah, yeah. They're going to be really vetted. I agree with his assessment there of like, when I mean, you tell someone they're a genius too much and it kind of ruins them. Like, I mean, Byrne is definitely a master of the form. I don't, I don't think there's any disputing that. Part of what made him good was his audacity. Like they take big swings in these X-Men yeah. comics and that's part of the fun. But it does seem like as his career went on that, I mean, these guys need editors and they get too big mm -hmm. for editors, whether it's these, whether it's an internal editor or an external one. Yeah, um, they're great character. They're great creators. They have good insight into the character. So like when he takes over the FF, he's like, I think this is what makes the FF work. Everybody else who didn't do this is wrong. That sort of confidence helps him tell these stories great. But then as they go on and on and on, it is become it does become this issue where it's like, well, you know. Times change. Different uh, creators have worked on these characters. They've changed some good, some bad. And you don't like anything that doesn't match your vision. But they weren't going to just stay the same as when you wrote them. Like if, if Byrne was reading FF today, he'd be like, this is terrible. This is not the right. This is not the good FF. But that doesn't mean there haven't been great FF stories since John Byrne. Right. Uh, Claremont feels ownership of the X-Men and, you know, arguably should. Yeah. Uh, but when he reads the X-Men comics today or attempts to, he might say, this doesn't feel like my X-Men, and I don't think this is the X-Men. But it's like his X-Men weren't the X-Men of Kirby and Lee. 
Right. Uh, he made them better. And I'm not saying today's stuff is better than Claremont's, but it's like, you know, it's that same people, sort of like people have a right to do it differently and see if they can find something new. Yeah. And I don't get the feeling that Claremont has this sort of ego chip that Byrne does necessarily. I'm not implying that, but yeah, uh, some creators I, I feel like, and Byrne is a great example of one, just like they're great because they, they like, when I tell the story, I'm going to do it my way and I'm going to do it great. But then they spend like the rest of their time trying to fix everyone else back to where they were they, like his way again. Yeah. It's like, ah, if you were really good, you'd roll with the punches. Right. Uh, or if you were still good, I guess is what it is. Kevin, I think that was a very articulate email we just got. Yeah. Uh, Graham seems smart. Yeah. Stop writing us, Graham. You make us feel, you make us feel dumb. Let's go on. Robert Christ emails us. Hey, brothers. Hey. Uh, oh, he has pitches for different names for the listeners. Okay. I think we asked for other pitches. Right. Step Brothers. Okay. Screws. <laughs> yeah. Screws is pretty good. Wheat Cakes. Sure. And bugles. Oh, these are, those are good attempts. Those are good attempts. I feel like they're not going to stick, but I mean, you know, we didn't pick milk stops either. So <laughs> no, no, I don't. <laughs> screws. I kind of like, it's got kind of a 1930s feel. Hey, you bunch of screws. Get All in right. here. We're going to be talking about some X-Men today. To all the screws listening to today's episode. <laughs> what's up? What's the screwers? I mean, it's nice that it's short. Did you see who I was imitating there, Kev? Uh, yeah, you were imitating uh, Neil Gaiman. That's correct. It's flowery speech, <laughs> British accent. Um, what if is now on Disney Plus? Yeah, I haven't watched it yet. Well, you're behind. Uh, Spider Man is set to appear in a scene wearing Doctor Strange Strange's cloak of levitation. Uh, in one of the trailer ads, he's talking about. I've seen the episode that uh, where that happens. What are the what if stories you enjoyed reading, and what are some you want to see in the show? They appear to not directly be doing stuff from the comics, but adapting past MCU films, at least based on episode one, which was Peggy Carter taking the super soldier serum. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Additionally, I tried thinking of some cool Spidey what if situations, but with a Spider-Verse, different Spider-Man, different people, et cetera, what hasn't been done? I say, what if Peter went bad and started murdering people after Uncle Ben's death? But is that what we want? I don't know. Interested in your thoughts. Uh, a lot there, Will. Any any responses there? When I was a kid, the what if stories I always wanted were basically bad ideas for stories. They were just the ones that like solved the core problems for the heroes. What if Uncle Ben had lived would mm -hmm. be an, a what if story that I would be dying to read. And I think there uh, is know, one where what if Uncle Ben lived, but they just kill Aunt May instead. Yeah, I mean, I kind of think that sort of makes sense. Like the, it's like the universe requires Spider-Man to suffer a great loss, kind of. Like I'm sure there was something that felt intrinsically just about that in a strange way. Yeah. From but a, story, a, from a more story interesting story is what if his both his parent figures lived? Yeah, that that's the kind of stuff that I would always want to know. Or what if the thing could change back and forth to Ben Grimm? Oh, uh, that's a good like, always. Yeah, just oh, just just the way like the torch could, mm -hmm. or Colossus. Um, yeah, for, it's, for some it, reason, those would appeal to me. Like I'd want to see these characters. I love to have a moment of like peace or something like that. I that, know that's that a thing weird thing would, to want. The thing one would probably be a very slightly nuanced story. Like maybe he doesn't end up with Alicia. Yeah, that'd have or, to be a, a trade off, right? Like because probably like he ended up with Alicia because like he was sort of miserable and sad, and she found him in that moment. But like maybe if he's like this, you know, pretty good looking guy who can become the thing, like he's living like a, a life of a superstar. Yeah. Maybe gets to his head. Maybe he's a bit more of a blowhard like Johnny. Um, another funny, I also like the funny ones. Like what if Aunt May fought Galactus? 
mm-hmm. think was I think that's an actual what if issue. Like those always kind of caught my eye. Is that a what if story? That might just be a Spider-Man story. I can't um, remember. It definitely is a story that happened. Yeah, it's, in it's, some an assistant, context. it's an assistant editor's month story for um, sure. Okay, right. I uh, love assistant editor's month because it was she was the gold, she became the golden oldie. She becomes the uh herald of Galactus. Golden oldie, really fun. I think um, she feeds him Twinkies. And then sometimes, you know, it might be like, I don't even know. I, this, this would be a DC one, but what if like Green Lantern's ring worked on yellow or something like that? Or it does now. Um, okay, there you go. Uh, what would be one you'd do on the movies or the t- or the TV shows? I don't know. What if Thanos won? What if the blip was not undone or something like that? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, this got to be a better one than that. That was lame. How about what yeah, if? Yeah, pretty, um, pretty lame. Pretty lame. Okay, what if um, you know the Thor Ragnarok movie where there's like the the um, gladiator planet or whatever? Yeah, I remember. I don't know. What if Ant Man? <laughs> I don't even know what you're gonna say. For some reason, I started laughing. What if Ant Man, you know, became the top gladiator of that of that planet? I had you, and I lost you. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. How, how you get an Ant-Man there? I don't know what you're I doing. I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing. What would you do? So uh, uh, what do I get to say? He asks about cool Spidey what-if situations. The ones that I know of, the, there's the famous one, the very first issue of what-if was what if Spider-Man joined the Fantastic Four. Right. I remember that. Because he tries to join the team in Amazing Spider-Man 1 and, and doesn't. Yeah. And there's basically a story. The first what-if is, well, what if they said, yeah, join. Right. And he becomes a member of the team. And I think eventually it leads to Sue marrying Namor and Spidey becoming like them becoming the Fantastic Four with Spider-Man instead of uh, the Invisible Woman. Oh, wow. Weird. So it's good for Reed that he didn't join. I don't think Reed marries Peter. I don't think that's where it goes. (laughs) There's also one where they, for a while they were doing these what if stories that were a little um, vaguer. There wasn't like a, what if this happened? It was just like, what if something, this just played out differently. (laughs) Like there wasn't like one moment. So there was one that was like uh, the Spider-Man versus Wolverine story where Spider-Man accidentally kills a woman. Okay. Do you remember this story? No. This is Spider-Man versus Wolverine by Jim Olsley, now Christopher Priest, where Spider-Man and Wolverine are like, I don't remember where they are. Spider-Man is like, didn't bring his costume and is just there as a photographer. I think it's where Ned Leeds gets killed. And, and during this story, like this woman is trying to, wants to die gets Spider-Man to punch her. Like in the middle of a combat, she like sneaks up on Spider-Man and he reels around and punches her because he thinks he's fighting like super villains and he punches her so hard she dies. Okay. And it like traumatizes Spider-Man for the story. And Wolverine's like, no, man, that's what she wanted to have happen. You couldn't, there's nothing you could have done about it. It's like a very, it's a very famous story, Spider-Man versus Wolverine. Okay, yeah. I'm Uh, I'm ashamed that I don't know it. There is a what if comic that basically is like, what if that just changed Spider-Man? And like, he's like, ah, maybe killing is okay sometimes. And he, he and Wolverine sort of become a, a duo that go around like doing like wet works. Wow. And it's a really fun story. It is not Spider-Man. It's like very yeah, different yeah, than yeah. Spider-Man. Um, and it's very cool. He shows up during Spider-Verse in the uh, a comic Spider-Verse. Anyway, because he asks like, uh, a Spider-Man who kills people is what he asks about Robert Christ. And like, there is a story that sort of does that. And what if Spider-Man married Gwen Stacy? What if Gwen Stacy lived, you know, and like gets married to Spider-Man? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a good one. That, I, that's got to have happened. That's got to have been explored, yeah. But There's definitely been at least two versions of what if Spider-Man kept the black costume. Right. 
There's one that's going on right now by Chip Tazarski. That's a six issue miniseries. And there was a one issue or one as well. Yep. That seems like a really fun one. I generally find what if stories not that fun. I, I agree. They generally, the TV show also does this well. They're generally darker. They're generally like, what if something worse happened? Okay. Uh, yeah. They rarely do like, what if uh, Uncle Ben lived and Spider-Man was happy? It's or like, what, what if, if it's yeah. like, you know, what if Dr. Doom got the Fantastic Forest powers or something? Yeah, yeah. What if the bullpen bulletin got the Fantastic Four powers is one. Yeah. <laughs> Stan Lee becomes uh, Reed and uh, Jack Kirby becomes Thing. But yeah, if I was going to do one off the movies, well, what's like the most interesting twist in the movies? Like, what if Iron Man kept his identity secret? Or what if okay. Iron Man died at the end of Avengers 1? Like, what, like he almost dies. What if he just did? What if he didn't come back through the portal? All right, yeah. That's a good one. There you go. And then that probably leads to Ant-Man going to that gladiator planet. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, we got a question from Julio. He okay. says, hello, Milksops. It's been a while since I last emailed you. I'm loving the X-Men Claremont run. I've only read the Dark Phoenix saga, and I'm about to start uh, Days of Future Past. Uh, this is back in August, Will. Okay. I'm really curious about how the mutants will be added to the MCU since the X-Men were an analogy for civil rights in the 60s and everything. I wonder if they will keep that as much, keep that as not much as changed, sadly, or if they will incorporate other human rights issues such as LGBTQIA plus or women equal paid or immigration, et cetera. What do you guys think or would like to see? And then he says, also not sure if I've mentioned this, but I am from Costa Rica and there's a fellow Costa Rican working on DC comics as an artist, Dan Mora. I believe he's working at Batman and the flash, which is crazy. Hmm. And I also Dan Mora is doing detective comics and Dan Mora is really, really good. Hmm. I really like his work. Nice. Um, he, he did an indie book too that I, I can't remember what it was called. Um, that was also very good. But uh, his detective comics work is real, real good. He's also, he's working with a writer, Mariko Tamaki, who's the first regular female writer for detective comics. Cool. So that's a cool thing. Anyway, the mutants question, Will, as, as an, anal an analogy for civil rights, persecuted minorities. I, I would love to see that. I, I do think the X-Men, when I was reading comics, tended to be basically younger and cooler than the rest of the Marvel universe, more diverse, kind of more, there was more romance and soap opera stuff going on. Yeah. They were persecuted. So they're the outcasts and the uh, outsiders, darker stuff tended to go down in, in that. So I would hope for that to be true. You know, I would hope for the Avengers to be sort of the corporate day job team and the X-Men to be the scrappy indie team, whatever that means yeah. in our current, world i do think the x-men have this interesting thing where they are often talk about like oh they were they were uh an analogy to being black or an analogy to being gay right yeah because like they're persecuted but they're why are they different than other superheroes or they're persecuted uh and or they come out when they're teenagers <laughs> with powers and i think those analogies are fun for certain stories but i also think and i think creators who've worked on these comics would agree like they're not perfect analogies like they only hold up on the micro side like on this storyline that analogy works but as like a massive thing it doesn't quite make sense right like people being afraid of black people never makes sense right people being afraid of wolverine kind of makes sense sure he's yeah. got claws he's violent uh you know why would they be more afraid of him than iron man okay that doesn't quite make sense necessarily but like being afraid of oh there's a bunch of people that are being born with superpowers that would terrify me a little bit yes but if you said like, oh, there's people being born that look different than you. Yeah. I'd be like, oh, okay. 
Right. So it doesn't uh, it, totally hold up if you lean on that too much. Right. That's what I'm it's, saying. It's so sort like, of ha- it has to be kind of it's it's there. It's part of it. It might make more sense to lean on just the outcast feelings. Yes, I think like, so. One thing about them being younger is it's just. I mean, you can feel like an outcast or left out at any age, of course, but it feels especially like part of being a teenager to feel sort of alone yes, uh, and not understood for all kinds of reasons. And it certainly could include things like, um, you know, civil rights, being a, a minority in a, in a racist society. I'm going to get the initials wrong. LGBTQ plus like, yeah, you know, if you if you if you make it exclusively that I don't think the metaphor will bear the weight. Like in the X-Men 2 movie, there's a scene where they go to Bobby Iceman's family and, he, and they find out he's a mutant, right? Yeah. And I think there's like, oh, have you tried not being a mutant? Like it, they're right there leaning on like a, a gay analogy in that scene. Yeah. Uh, and it works in that scene alone. Yeah. Uh, it's just being gay is very different than having superpowers. <laughs> Those are just right. two drastically different things. And it works as a scene or it works as a story. Like if you were doing an X-Men movie that was about the X-Men discovering they have powers while they're in high school and being recruited by Charles Xavier, you could really play up the, the feeling of like, I'm weird and different and I'm not like anyone else. And nobody knows what it's like to be me. Uh, yeah. And discover, oh, there's a whole culture of people like me. Like, that's a great story. I think, yeah, the problem Once with the meta- superhero team fighting Magneto, like that's a different story. And you can do both stories. Yeah. Another problem with the metaphor is like just have a gay character who's also going through the issues yes. of coming out or just have a, a non-white character. That's in addition to his yeah. ability to like turn into a television or whatever it is like. But um, I think if they do the X-Men, like the X-Men being persecuted is always a part of them. Like the government's afraid of mutants. That will be part of it, I'm sure, in the MCU. But I hope what you, what you're saying is like that the X-Men that they take advantage of the fact that like the MCU does not have enough diversity and create an X-Men comic that steers even more heavily into the diversity than the X-Men comics that we're reading now. I mean, it's, it, there's a tradition for it. Like that's we don't re- even rel- need... relative to wherever the Marvel universe was. The X-Men's always ahead of the curve that way. We don't need Cyclops to be a straight white man. I guess is what I'm saying in the X-Men world. Yeah. So he can be, but like, we don't need that. He can be bisexual. He can be uh, Latino. He can be anything. Like certain characters, I need to stick with their race, but I don't know if Cyclopses matter. I mean, Storm's got to come from Africa, right? Like that's right. just like so much, such a part of her story. And Colossus being Russian, like some of them already have like fun yeah. angles. I mean, I assume whatever they do will be heavily featuring Banshee. I mean, that's a given. <laughs> it's just too be- popular. <laughs> Banshee's fun. Banshee's fun, yeah. What do? How many more do you want to do, Will? Ten. Dan Mora. Uh, Dan Mora has done Hexed. Is that what you're thinking of? Once and Future? I'm looking Once at- Once and Future is what I was thinking of. Okay. Quixote? I didn't know he did Hexed. I've heard good things about Hexed, but I've never read it. Uh, his work in Detective Comics is great. Whenever there's a fill-in artist, I'm very disappointed. That's you know, a very good artist, but Dan Mora is- Special. He's a superstar. Nice. Tony Labra has emailed us again, Will. Good. Hi, you wheat cakes. Eat, hi, hi, you wheat cake eating milksop panty waste. <laughs> Oof. Nice. Uh, would you ever consider reviewing Disney's Pixar's The Incredibles and its sequel? After all, and still to this day, the first Incredibles was only the best Fantastic Four remake ever made. Director mm-hmm. Brad Bird was obviously inspired by the FF and saw how Marvel and Fox Studios just took forever to do a movie of their number one superhero team that put Marvel on the map. I can't believe the timing, but The Incredibles just came out one year before the 2005 FF movie by Fox. Uh, yes, Director Brad and Director Birds swapped a speedster for the Human Torch, but the elements that made the Marvel's greatest superhero team click with audiences back in the day were nicely updated and packaged in what is my favorite Pixar movie for obvious reasons. 
Anywho, hurry back from your break. We miss you guys tons. P.S. You also can, can't tell me that the mole man didn't inspire the villain introduced at the end of Incredibles 1, the Underminer. Right. And he certainly looks like him. Oh, Underminer is a mole man. Analog. Yeah. I don't know if Incredibles was, and at least from, a, from the starting point, a FF remake. I think it yeah. evolved into borrowing or leveraging some of those elements. Yeah, they, uh, they weirdly don't feel like FF to me. The, the Incredibles feel like their own thing. Yeah. Um, they're, There's similarities. There's four of them. They all have powers. They are family. I mean, they are for real a family. Um, three of the powers are mirrors of the FF powers. Yes. Uh, but it's, there's, I always think of, I weirdly think of it more as like family watchmen. Like heroes have been banned. But instead of the Watchmen, which is like socio-political ramifications, this is like family ramifications. Dad mm-hmm. goes through a midlife crisis. Yeah, uh, the kid feels like he's not allowed to be special in the way that he's special. Yeah. Um, so I, I kind of think of it. I definitely think of it as its own thing primarily, and I always compared it more to Watchmen in my head in a strange way, even though the tone is totally different. And I, not, I don't think that it's like trying to update Watchmen, but just it, it sits next to Watchmen in my head, like yeah. a kid, like a kid's Watchmen sort of. I mean, so much of the fun of the Incredibles is they're not allowed to use their powers. Yeah. But that's like what makes them special. They should be allowed to use their powers if they use them good. I mean, the line of the Incredibles that always jumps out to me is when... Um, yeah, I know what you're going to say right now. I'm going to say, say the first one, one word. I'm going to say one word and you tell me if I'm right. Okay. Or I'm going to say w- one part of it. Okay. You tell me if I'm right and then you can tell the whole bit. Okay. As fast as I can? Is that the oh, thing? Oh, no, no. That, but, that's oh. Rela- but that's related to it. Okay. What's your what's your thing? Mine's the mine. setup setup for that moment. So I'll do mine and you do yours. Mine is when no. they're when um uh Elastigirl, the mom, God, what's your name? Is driving Dash to school. Hel- Helen Parr, but it's Elastigirl. Okay. Uh Elastigirl says, um, remember, dear, uh everyone is special. And then Dash goes, Was it just a way of saying that no one is? Or something <laughs> like that. Oh, that's interesting. And I was like, when I watched, I was like, yeah, he's right. Like, so you're allowed, you're allowed to be proud of what you're good at, sort of. Mm-hmm. I don't want to take that into an Ayn Rand kind of objectivism, but just yeah. like, yeah, you can't, you know, you gotta, can't keep your light under a bushel. You can, you gotta, you yeah. get proud of what you're good at. I thought you were going to talk about, because uh, this is a part. You've I, but I, but I think, of, of I think of the moment you're doing is like the parallel to that. Like she's yeah. telling him in the car, you can't, th- you know, you got to think as everybody is special. And the moment you're about to say it, go, go ahead and say it. I love. So they're moment. on the run from, they're on the island with all the robots and she's got to go off and find her husband, Mr. Incredible. And so she's leaving the kids and she's like, if anyone finds you run as fast as you can. And he smiles. And dash like eyes go wide. He goes as fast as I can. Because uh, he's not allowed to run as fast as he can ever. Yeah. And so it's just the idea that he might get to is so exciting and tantalizing to him. Yeah, it's a really fun moment of the movie. And then when he gets to run super fast is a blast. I mean, the movie is terrific, right? It it's is a, just, it, it is, is a great such, movie. Uh, your son is obsessed with Incredibles too. My, my son is obsessed with the sequel. I've seen the sequel uh, 500 times <laughs> as, a, as a conservative <laughs> estimate. I know it so well. It's, I mean, it's a good movie. So it's often, it's also one of the, like sometimes he watches things and I'll sort of wander off or not pay attention or put headphones on. Criminals 2 is on. I'm like, oh, I'm watching it again too. <laughs> I get sucked into it. Um, I, there's parts that make me tear up almost. Mm. It's. I think Incredibles 2 is really good. He thinks it's better than one. I think it might be. I think it might be. I think by <laughs> focusing on Elastic Girl, I think my son might be right. I also have an idea for Incredibles 3. Can I pitch it to you, Will? Sure. 
this feels like the only time I'll get to do it. Okay, let's hear I, it. I, I tweeted at Brad Bird. He didn't take me up on it. Weird. So he had his opportunity. So, so the first movie is about Mr. Incredible, mostly. Okay. And the second movie is about Elastigirl, mostly, at least as far as action. So the third movie should be about Violet. Ooh, I'm already on board. And so I think the third movie should be uh, Violet gets invited to join us. Heroes are now legal. Okay. The first two movies sort of like they're they're not legal now they are and then the second movie sort of goes oh they're still not legal and now they are I'm gonna get rid of that part they're legal okay so she gets recruited to be part of a superhero team a Teen Titans your X Men whatever you want I love this and, it, and it's sort of like an analogy of like going off to college yes and the family is sort of sad like no you're you're an incredible you're not a Teen Titan yeah and she's like no I'm a Teen Titan now right. And there's sort of this tug and pull. It's like, oh, yeah, you're a Teen Titan now, but you're always an Incredible, which sort of be the story. Okay, right. You're always part of this family. That never changes. Right. Even if you're also part of this team, that's temporary, maybe. Maybe it's permanent. Maybe it's not. Yeah. And so she would join this team, and the team would turn out to be almost Thunderbolt style, like kind of secretly villains. Okay. And she would kind of get sucked in, and then she'd have to like join up with the Incredibles to stop them. But then it would sort of end with like, uh, like a subset of that evil team, maybe becoming a new heroic team. Right. Uh, a subplot to this movie would be Dash sort of jealous that his sister gets to go out and fight crime and he can't do it solo because he's still too young. Yeah. Kevin, I love this story. I'm so impressed. My pitches are always like, you know, what if Spider-Man had to like do improv for a year? It's mostly because like it took him a long time to do the second movie because they claimed they didn't have an idea. And so I watch this movie often going, well, there's got to be a third one. This, these are so good. And at the very end of the third one, the character Vibe, who, uh, uh, Avoid, sorry, Void, who makes teleportation uh, portals. Yeah. And my son loves this character, uh, is talking to Violet. She's like, oh, it's so, she's like talking to Violet, how cool Violet was. She's like, oh, it's so cool when you did this and this. And in my mind, it's like, oh, Vibe's going to recruit or Void is going to recruit. Vibe is a DC character. Void is going to recruit Violet to be on a superhero team. And I was like, and if she did that, the family would be sad because they've just become like this yeah. functioning superhero team. And now they're losing one of their own. Yeah. And it would be really sad, but it's, and also it's like the idea of like your daughter going to college is hard for families. I'm grown up. I don't need you anymore. And so playing up with that, I think would be really fun too. Like you could do like both the analogy and the fun super relics. It also gives you the chance to introduce a lot of new characters and stuff like that. But yeah, it's because of that scene where that happens. I'm like, that's your next movie right there. Kevin, you, I'm sold. I think this might be yeah. better than my Enforcer's idea. Uh, the fourth movie would have to be a Dash movie. I don't have that worked out yet. We'll see how the third one turns Come out. Come back to us in a couple of years, uh, Brad. Yeah, Brad, once we make Incredibles <laughs> 3, and I'm waiting, <laughs> I'm happy to just get co-writing credit. You can direct and write. I mean, like, get, me a, get my foot in the door. <laughs> Kevin, what was your first professional job? I co-wrote Incredibles 3. Wow, how does that yeah, happen? Yeah. But then I'll do uh, Ratatouille 2, where he becomes a superhero. <laughs> But thank you, Tony, for giving me the freedom to pitch that. But I do think there's a lot of FF in The Incredibles. That's for sure. Yep. Yeah. I think maybe that's a good place to stop. What do you think? Right. Well, I think it's great. So we've got um, a few more here, including one from Eric Tenoy. But Eric Tenoy is sort of a dummy. So we'll answer that next time. That's my problem with Eric is he's an intellectually bad. Um, so um, next Mutants in Mailbag, we're going to go over more Hellfire Club. More Hellfire Club, yes. And then the one after that, I think, is the death of Phoenix. Phoenix, yeah. And the Spoiler next alert. episode of this podcast should be the Claremont interview, but I'm, I just haven't edited it yet. But There's a little assume, editing to be done. We have to also it, record an intro and outro for it. Yeah, let's assume we get that done. 
Yeah. Uh, so look for that. Chris Claremont. That's a big one. And hopefully more, we'll do more interviews as it goes. We go on. I don't know who. I got some ideas. All right. Uh, email us. Screw it, comics, uh, screw it comics at gmail.com, please. Yeah. And check out our Twitter, uh, Screw It Comics, and our Instagram, Screw It Comics. Thanks for listening. Bye, everyone. Bye. Screw it. Screw it. Screw it. Screw it. Comics. Have you ever encountered an unexplained hairy bipedal hominid in the woods? Have you received telepathic messages from an unidentified aerial phenomenon? If so, then you need to listen to Bigfoot Collectors Club. I'm Michael McMillan. And I'm Bryce Johnson. And together with super producer... Riley Bray. We make up the Bigfoot Collectors Club. That's right. Every week we talk to actors, comedians, writers, and paranormal experts about their personal paranormal histories and share stories of high strangeness. Like the time when we talked to Craig Ferguson about the Loch Ness Monster and when a sea witch told him he had raven magic or the time i asked pitch perfect santa camp her opinion on cattle mutilations past guests have included rachel bloom jen kirkman paul f tompkins bobcat goldweight and more so if you've ever been abducted alongside five reindeer by an alien with drills for hands or witnessed bigfoot crawl out of an interdimensional portal don't laugh happens all the time then check out bigfoot collectors club on campfire media or wherever you get your podcasts bigfoot Bigfoot collectors club you're You're here here to to believe believe us Wait, is that how it goes? Campfire.